I think when you decide to jump off a cliff like that, you have no idea what's going to happen the next day, much less the next hour. Had I known that we would be in this revolution right now and that so much progress would be made and that so many other women would come forward and we would actually be calling it a movement, wow, I mean, I might have jumped a lot sooner. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Gretchen Carlson joins us on Skimmed from the Couch. As a career journalist, she's also become an advocate for equality and dignity in the workplace. Carlson sued the former Fox News chairman and CEO, Roger Ailes, in 2016. Her bombshell lawsuit ignited national conversations about sexual harassment and has inspired her advocacy work. We are very excited for this conversation. Gretchen, welcome to Skim from the Couch. Thanks for having me. I feel like I've known you guys for so long, and it's like so great to be able to have this discussion. So thanks for having me. So we're going to start the way we start all interviews, which is skim your resume for us. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'll start with the latest additions, which were never expected to be on my resume, which are, you know, being one of the poster women for sexual harassment in the workplace. That's not necessarily something you aspire to when you're putting together your first resume and talking about goals and challenges in a life ahead of you. But I would say that what else has been on my resume over my life has been series of accomplishments where challenges were in front of me and I really went for them. And so... The same thing is true for this latest endeavor that I've been doing for the last three years, which is to really try and tackle this problem of workplace harassment. So that would be at the top of my resume now. The very short version following that would be Fox News for 11 years. Before that, five years at CBS News. Before that, a lot of local markets, including Dallas, Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Richmond. Before that, being the first classical violinist to be Miss America. And before that, studying at Oxford University, getting my degree from Stanford University, being high school valedictorian and being a concert violinist as a child. So you're super relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) I am not driven at all. No, no, listen, (laughs) after I've had some milestone birthdays, I become trying to become my new goal to be more chill. And it's actually really liberating to be more relaxed and just let things sort of ebb and flow. Women are reared to be perfectionists and we're socialized to not color outside of the lines. And I'm really, really, really trying to do more of that and advocating that for younger women as well. We've seen and heard a lot about you recently. Obviously, we saw you on TV for years and then we've seen movies depicting your story. What's one thing that you can't Google, you can't watch, (laughs) that people don't know about you? Oh, my gosh. Um, All the things I cannot do. So I cannot whistle. I can't either. I can't either. <laughs> I think it's actually... Is it genetic thing? I think it's genetic. I, I can't it, do I it. I can't roll my tongue. Can't do that either. Okay. That is genetic. Okay. So those two things. I can't parallel park. Oh, oh same. Can't I, either. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I only have done it once in my life to pass my driver's same. test mm-hmm. when I was 16 years old. So, I actually just got a car that is supposed to be able to do that for me, but I haven't had time to set it up. Did so. you get a Tesla? I did. I've I've tried it. It worked. Oh, my gosh. It okay. changed my relationship with driving. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so sometime this weekend or whenever I have time, I need to really actually read the manual and figure that out. Um, I grew up a chubby kid. 
I struggled with my weight for all of my teenage years. And I actually feel that that is really inspirational for young women, especially today, because there's so much more emphasis on exterior, which I always try to advocate for for young people and and older women, too, that really it's, you know, it's about what's inside and we should build our self-esteem from the inside out. People look at television personalities and you probably get the same thing with what you do, that they think that there haven't been any struggles or that they're just perfect and that certainly hasn't been the case with my life at all. I mean, I really feel like success is truly appreciated when you've gone through struggles and failures and overcome those those hurdles. I totally agree. Want to just sort of take a step back. What was your family situation? What was your childhood like? Just kind of give us who you were before you became a person on TV. Well, I look at my family life as, as idyllic. Like I said, a small town in Minnesota with parents who believed in me and told me every day I could be anything I wanted to be in this world. And that was just incredibly important to hear that every single day. They, of course, said with the caveat, it's going to take a lot of work. And so I grew up with the Protestant work ethic, you know, of incredible hard work. I also grew up with huge philanthropic spirit. My grandfather was a minister. Um, My parents truly believed in giving back to the community. And I think that that's the greatest gift that I can pass along to my two teenage children, to understand that to truly be a whole individual, it's about giving to others. That was a huge part of my upbringing and a huge part of the work I'm doing now and where that all came from. How quickly did you realize or did other people realize you were a violin prodigy? Mm, That came about as a total fluke. I actually, apparently, according to my parents, I would hear commercial sort of songs on TV and I would go and plunk them out on the piano. Wow. And my mom was like, I think we need to get her piano lessons. And then we went up the street to a piano teacher who was our neighbor. And she said, oh, she'll never be any good at piano. Her hands are way too small. And so why don't you go up to the local school and, you know, talk to them about a different instrument? And I've got my first violin and it was just tiny. You know, it was like a foot long. And I started playing it and it just clicked. It just became who I was. What's it like to be really good at something that young? I loved it. It taught me discipline where... Even if you put in 10 minutes or 30 minutes a day, you got better at something. And for kids, that's so important because that's something I've carried with me for the rest of my life. That discipline I think about every single day. It really shaped how I've approached everything else in my life. It's something nobody can take away from me. It's a talent. It's something that I have made by myself and nobody can ever take that away. And I think that's just so crucial, especially for young people today, to be able to hone skills that they own. You went on to go to some of the most prestigious schools in the world mm-hmm. and then became Miss America. Mm-hmm. What, Oddly. <laughs> what, I mean, talk us through, like, what is that like? Uh, unexpected. Never on my radar screen whatsoever. So how did it get on your radar? My mother. When I was 17, I burned out on the violin and I quit. And my parents were devastated. And so I went off to concentrate on my academics. And when I was doing some time over at Oxford University in England. I got a phone call from my mom. She had gotten a brochure in the mail on the Miss America organization. She called me and she said, I found something for you to do. (laughs) And I said, what? And she described it to me. She said, it's 50% talent. You have that. It's 30% interview. You're smart. You can do this. And I'm like, yeah, mom, but I'm also short. Um, I'm also from Minnesota, which is not a pageant state. I also played classical violin and that's never won. And I've never been in pageants ever before and nor have ever watched them. And she was like, well, I think you can do this. And my mom's, you know, an incredibly influential person in my life and is my sharpest critic, but also my biggest cheerleader. What was her motivation and wanting She to wanted do? me to play the violin again. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that 100%. This was to try and get me back onto my music career. 
And so, you know, she and I became a, a team. I stopped out of Stanford my senior year because I realized if I was going to actually do this, to do it 150%, I had to give it 150% and I couldn't be doing my studies at Stanford and trying to prepare I for this. I find that fascinating. And I want to just pause on that for a second because I would say you doing that is probably going against the popular decision or assumption, mm -hmm. which is going against the grain a little bit to be like, you know what, actually, I'm going to prioritize this. A lot of people would say, stay in school. And obviously, we're going to talk about how you went against the grain in other parts of your life. Talk to us like what your personality was at that time, what your confidence level was at that time. Well, it was pretty high because I had done tremendous amount of violin competitions, which, by the way, I never faced any gender discrimination or sexism with regard to that at all. They picked who played the best. I didn't care if you were a girl or a boy. And the same thing with my academics. You know, I never faced any kind of discrimination early on in my life. And so I was used to setting high standards and high goals. And this was something that I knew nothing about. But my mom and I really researched it from afar. Instead of participating, you know, in a lot of competitions, we researched it. And we just realized that for me, if I was going to try and really try and achieve this, that I couldn't be doing these two things at the same time. When I went to tell the dean at Stanford, who happened to be a woman, and I told nobody what I was doing, by the way. When I went to tell her, though, because I had to, she told me she thought it was the stupidest thing she'd ever heard of. And, you know, I said, well, OK, let's see how it let's see how it turns out. Listen, there's a tremendous amount of subjectivity in these kinds of competitions and luck and all of that. But I needed to be truly prepared in order to have a chance. So you win. You go on to become a journalist and you ultimately make the jump to Fox News where you become the co-host of the number one cable news morning show. You were there at a time at the network when it was just skyrocketing. When you started there, did you understand the impact the network would have and the direction it would take as kind of the cultural force that it became? Never. I went there because it was an opportunity to do a morning show five days a week. I was at CBS, and when I originally went to CBS, I was a correspondent, and I was traveling the world. My goal in television was always to do a morning show. The goal was always to be able to do a show that incorporated hard news where you could showcase your your smarts, but also showcase your sense of humor and lighter things. And so I got the opportunity finally at CBS to do their weekend morning show. And then when the Fox opportunity came about to do five days a week, I mean, that was just really what I had worked so hard to achieve. And so I went over there, you know, as a, as a total novice and Fox was just sort of starting out at the time. I learned a tremendous amount from cable because cable was totally different than network news in the sense that it was almost all ad lib. I'll never forget one of the first days I was there, and I was doing a different show than the morning show. And one line came over the AP wire that said something about that the person that had assassinated some leader in the Middle East had been caught. And the producer said to me in my ear, just go with this for like three minutes. And I was like, what? I don't even know who they're talking about. You know, I, I don't even know if I can pronounce this name. And I just had to dig deep. And luckily in my life, I had a lot of experience at doing that, not exactly in this realm, but I just started talking. And it made me realize from that day forward that, wow, this is a whole different craft when you're ad-libbing and, and not reading a teleprompter. And so, you know, cable news is just a completely different talent than what I had been doing before. So I will say that that was extremely beneficial to me to grow as a person and to get better at my craft. 
Now, there was a lot of other stuff that was going on. So we're so, we're going to talk about that, but I just want to separate what we're obviously going to talk about, how your experience with Fox ended up unfolding and, and what you helped uncover for, for the public. But I just want to get an idea of who you were at that time in your life as just a woman in business. What were you like as a manager? What were you like as someone to negotiate for yourself? Did you negotiate for yourself? Just kind of lay the groundwork for us. Yeah. So... First of all, I had great female bosses along the way and some great male bosses. And I was so fortunate to get their help that I became a huge proponent of helping women early on. I have stacks and stacks of letters and cards at my house that are from people all throughout my career, young women who I helped along the way to mentor. And I feel that that was a really big part of my professional life. At the time that I went to Fox, I had two babies at home. So I was doing that massive multitask thing that so many women are confronted with. And I was also getting up at 3 a.m. in the morning. And my babies were three months and one. How did you do that? I'm not a napper. And um, I just, you know, bulldozed through it. And then my husband was like, hey, I think we should move to the suburbs. And your commute will now be an hour instead of five minutes. And I was like, what? (laughs) But he he won that battle. Um, So I figured out a way to not get up as early and still try to try to manage everything. But I did stop breastfeeding, unfortunately, when I started at Fox, because that was like an insurmountable task at that point, like having two infants and trying to go to a new place to work, getting up at three in in the morning, five days a week, and trying to continue with the the breastfeeding. Um, So I felt guilty about that for a while. And I got over that pretty quickly. I think women harbor too much guilt about that whole work family Mm -hmm. life thing. That's the only thing I've ever felt guilty about being a working mom. And my son, who's now going to be 15 in a couple days, is fine. Yeah. <laughs> He's absolutely fine. But I was straddling that, you know, that hurdle that so many women, millions of women go through in trying to raise kids at the same time that you're working full time. Who were your mentors when you were coming up? Oh, my gosh. All, you know, all the stalwart women who've, who've laid the groundwork in television news from Diane Sawyer to... Barbara Walters to Connie Chun to Katie Couric to Meredith Vieira. And what was the type of stuff you would go to them for advice on? Uh, well, if I was lucky enough to run into them. I, I mean, mean, those are were, not people that most people heroes. have on Speed Dial. So yeah, like... yeah. No, but I would see them at different events. Once, once I got to the national yeah. scene, I would see them. And the very fact that they would even know who I was was like, whoa, you know. But that... did you have any, I'm not necessarily like household names, but did you have any mentors that you could just close the door and call and be like, I'm really stressed about this story or like, I have a contact negotiation coming up. I'm very stress. Like, did you have anybody that you could just confide in? Mm-hmm. So the women bosses that I had yeah. along the way, okay. who I'm still in touch with now, they were always my sounding board. Also in television news, you you typically are represented by agents. And so I would say that the agent that I was with for 20 plus years was, you know, also somebody that I was talking to almost on a daily basis. So you asked about negotiating yeah. deals and things like that. It also helps that my husband's an agent. That does help. I'm so, sure. Um, <laughs> you know, he, he and I have always been each other's first person that we go to on each of our business dealings. So he has been incredibly important to me along the way. We're going to shift gears and talk about what happened. To remind our audience, we're going to give them a quick skim. So after being fired from Fox News in 2016, Gretchen Carlson personally sued the then chairman of Fox News, Roger Ailes. In her lawsuit, Carlson claims that Ailes fired her after she refused his sexual advances. Carlson and 21st Century Fox reached a $20 million settlement, and Carlson received a public apology. Before his death in 2017, Ailes resigned from the network but denied the allegations made against him. We want to remind 
everyone listening that Gretchen is unable to talk about her time at Fox News because of the non-disclosure agreement, part of the settlement. Just reminding everyone as we get into this part of the conversation, to the extent that you can talk about it, what was that day like when you filed the lawsuit? Did you know what was coming? Just emotionally, how were you? Uh, No, I think when you decide to jump off a cliff like that, you have no idea what's going to happen the next day, much less the next hour. But my lawyers had prepared me for what the era was like three and a half years ago, which was you will be severely maligned. They will try to smear you and, you know, take you out and it will be horrible. And that was all true. But, you know, I still decided to go through with it. Listen, had I known that we would be in this revolution right now, and that so much progress would be made and that so many other women would come forward and we would actually be calling it a movement. Wow. I mean, I might have jumped a lot sooner, you know, but there were so many things working against and still to this day working against women and coming forward. The day that you filed the lawsuit, like where were you? What were you doing that day? Uh, Well, so the night before was the first time that we told our children And I had to tell my babysitter, my parents, my husband, and my lawyers were the only people who knew what I was doing because I just couldn't tell anyone else. But the the really great thing was that we were planning to go on a family vacation to California the next morning. And I was not planning on getting fired. And I I had to speed up the process. And so I said to my husband, you should still take the kids and go to California because I don't want them around here for all of this. That was the good thing. The bad thing was I was all by myself. So that morning I was picked up by one of my lawyers and we drove to New Jersey where some of my other lawyers were and we just all huddled together and they filed it in the courthouse and then we just waited. And then it was just like wildfire. The first reporter called my cell phone and, you know, we just waited and waited to see how Fox would respond. How long did it take for Fox? A long time. You know, it was agonizing, but it was also really fascinating because there wasn't an immediate comment and we weren't expecting that. So I would say that the first statement from 21st Century Fox that they were starting an investigation, which was huge, that came out around 6 p.m. Okay. So and then Ailes himself put out a statement at 6.15. So it was very strategically interesting. But listen, my lawyers were already fielding calls all day long from women who had allegations about Ailes from 50 years prior. Can you walk us through the legal strategy of why you sued him personally and not the network? Yeah, all I can say about that is that my lawyers came up with that brilliant strategy. Hypothetically, women who have arbitration clauses in their employment contracts cannot sue in open court, which is why I've been fighting for this on Capitol Hill for the last three years. You know, hypothetically, women are sent to the secret chamber of arbitration, which is why we didn't know about all these cases for so long. So let's actually talk about that. You've said your biggest regret about your settlement was signing a nondisclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. When you were negotiating your settlement, how aware were you of the restraints that would be put in place? I was aware of that. But at that point in time, nobody was even thinking about the fact that you wouldn't have to sign an NDA. It was part of this process that we have used to resolve these cases, which I'm actively trying to change now. So what was paramount at the time was, oh my gosh, I'm going to get a public apology from this company. That wasn't happening. I mean, that was incredibly progressive. And by the way, 
that's all that women want. Of all the women who've reached out to me by the thousands, all they want is that apology because it lets them know and lets the world know, for that matter, that what they were saying happened. So that's what the focus was was really on. Had I known that that my case would help to spark a cultural revolution. Just for our listeners, this was before the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke. Months before, yes. Um, so this really was sort of the first thing that kind of sparked this wave. For our listeners who might be making difficult decisions on their own or in a workplace environment that is not one of dignity, walk us through what your decision-making was to come forward and how you use your support network to get to that decision. This is not a decision that you make in one day. Building courage is a process. It's a life experience, actually. And I hearkened back to being a gutsy little girl, actually, on many occasions. Um, it was important for me to get my parents on my side, even though you know I'm, I'm an adult and I make my own decisions. I don't decisions. know if you can answer this, so forgive me if you can't. But had you confided in your mom the whole time? Yes. Did you have to try to get them on your side? Well, I grew up in Minnesota where it's Minnesota nice. People don't really like actively sue people all the time. So I think there was sort of that mindset. Even within my own family, we were sort of dealing with cultural stereotypes, myself included. We rear women to just keep working harder because, you know, finally they'll appreciate how smart you are, right? And they'll stop treating you that way. That's how I was socialized. So I just kept working harder and harder and harder as opposed to really saying, okay, enough is enough. So yes, you know, it wasn't it wasn't going to change my ultimate decision probably if my parents weren't on my side, but I distinctly remember the night that they called me and told me that they were. And it was an incredibly emotional phone conversation. And it was months before I made the decision. And so I just say that I'm still blessed to have them in my life. And no matter how old you are, getting your parents' stamp of approval, especially with something like this, it was just really, really, you know, important. But it was a period of time, a long period of time that I was planning and assessing. I think what sped up the process was when I was fired. That was surprising. And so then we just had to act quicker. It's great hearing about the support that you had from your family. On the flip side, a lot of the people that you knew and you worked with publicly attacked you. Mm -hmm. They Some sided with Roger Ailes, some called you a liar. How'd you deal with that? I was prepared for that. It still stung like hell, uh, especially the women who came out against me, who were my friends and who I admired. But I knew it was gonna, gonna happen. And so I tried to not focus on that. I mean, I think it's similar to when people tell you not to focus on trolls on Twitter, right? I just had to keep my I going straight forward and really look out for my children, which was my paramount concern. I think we've really improved as a society as far as maligning women now. I mean, when you think about the great strides that have happened in the last three years, we're actually believing women. We're not maligning them as much when they come forward. I mean, that's huge. Perpetrators are actually being held accountable. They're being fired. They're having to issue apologies right away. These are things that were not happening at all when I brought my case forward. So I do think we've made great strides. And I try on a daily basis to not focus on the negatives and who wronged me. Some of those people have tried to come back to me since that time to apologize. And, you know, that's fine. But I'm, I'm probably not going to publicly say, oh, let's be friends again. <laughs> I really found out who my friends yeah. were. And 
it's really fascinating when something like this happens in your life because some people who I've known incredibly well and I lived close to have never acknowledged this part of my life at all. And some people who I had not heard from for over 30 years reached out to me. I'm really curious about when you look back now, Fox News is where you became a household name. It was also, for you, the worst place you could work. How do you think about those two realities in your experience? Um, I just think that it was part of my path and I'm on to something else that's so much greater now and so much more important, quite honestly. If the work that I'm doing actually comes to fruition and we change laws and move this forward and continue the dialogue, we will actually change the way in which the American workplace operates. That's huge. That is so much more monumental than anything I could have ever done at Fox News. And at the same time, I'm doing my television career as well. So I'm doing the advocacy. I'm being a mom. I'm doing my television work. This is the best time in my life, arguably. Since leaving Fox, you obviously have gone on to become an advocate, also an author, and now running this amazing organization. You were also the chairwoman of the Miss America organization. During your time at Miss America, a number of critics and former Miss Americas called for your resignation, citing a lack of transparency. You ultimately stepped down. But I'm just curious, how did you handle that criticism? <laughs> you know, this was happening at a time in the wake of a time of intense scrutiny on you. Just how were you emotionally during this time? Uh, listen, I took on that role. I was recruited to take on that role by former Miss Americas. I did it on a volunteer basis. I certainly didn't have time to do it, um, but I did it because I gained a lot from the organization, including paying for my whole last year of Stanford University from my scholarship money. I'm proud of the changes that we made. I believed in the 21st century we shouldn't objectify women anymore in bikinis. And I believe the focus should be on the talent, the smarts, and the social impact initiatives of these young women who are amazing. And so, you know, I'm proud that the board unanimously got rid of swimsuit. I'm proud that we elevated talent back to 50%. And when I was able to help secure the deal with NBC to broadcast the telecast and move it into the 100th anniversary, it was time for me to move on and pass the reins to somebody else. I've got so much else going on in my life. And I would just end it by saying that change is difficult for people. When you think about how you and anyone would take criticism at one part in your life and where how you take it now after going through everything you've been through. How are you different? I think that I was used to criticism my whole life because as a student, as a musician, you're constantly being criticized. Do it this way. Don't do it that way. I was a good student. I was a good listener. And so I've been used to constructive criticism my entire life. Lies and smears are a different kind of criticism, but I've learned to move past that. It's really important, I think, for your listeners and just for life in general to not get bogged down in the criticism that is not relevant or truthful. We all need to have constructive criticism in our lives to make us better people, but it didn't behoove me at the time to go line by line and say, that's a lie, that's a lie, that's a lie. It just didn't. Again, I had my eye on the prize just moving forward and trying to make the organization relevant for the 21st century. What I think is fascinating is hearing you talk is that you were a student, but clearly in the last few years, you became your own teacher um, and you've, you've charted your own path. And I'm want to talk a little bit about Lift Our Voices, which is your new organization that you co-founded. What is Lift Our Voices? What are you trying to achieve? Lift Our Voices is a nonprofit organization that hopes to 
end arbitration clauses in employment contracts that keep the issue of harassment and other toxic work environments secret and also eradicate non-disclosure agreements or NDAs. These are the two ways in which we have been able to allow perpetrators to continue harassing people for the last 30 years. And Lift Our Voices came about organically when NBC announced that they were going to purportedly let women out of their NDAs there in the fall of 2019. A group of us at Fox News got together that night on the phone and we were like, okay, we're gonna demand that Fox News let us out of our NDAs. And so we've sent those letters, we have not heard back. And then a couple of weeks later, we were like, you know, we should really form an organization as an umbrella, you know, to help all of these other women. One third of the American workforce signs NDAs. 60 million Americans are forced into signing arbitration clauses in their employment contracts. And the scary thing is most people don't even know it. So when you start a new job, you sign off on these things, not thinking you're going to get into a dispute at work. I know I didn't. And then you find yourself in a dispute and you're like, well, crap, I got to go to arbitration, not an open court. And I signed this NDA so I can never tell anyone what happened to me. We believe that in 2020, women and men should not be muzzled. So the mission of Lift Our Voices is to unmuzzle America. And we believe that when we accomplish these two things in eradicating arbitration and NDAs, that we will change the landscape of the American workplace for women. And I'm not underselling that. I mean, this is massive, massive change that will forever change the landscape for women because women who come forward and say, I'm being discriminated against or I'm being harassed, will actually be celebrated. They won't be forced into settlement, NDA, bye-bye, you never work again, right? That's what we need to change. We need to change the way we've looked at this issue and the way that we've resolved this issue. Thinking about our audience listening right now, what are your key recommendations actually going through it? Because I think a lot of the advice out there, a lot of what is missing is tactical. Mm -hmm. Like if you're in this experience, how do you know how to start to get yourself out of it? It's a great question because you have to be practical. And it's why I wrote my book, Be Fierce. First of all, because all these women started reaching out to me and I wanted to share their stories. But chapter four is my playbook. And there are 12 points there of everything you need to do if you're experiencing this right now. I'll just highlight a couple of them. The first thing is you have to get outside legal advice as soon as you can because you have to know, do I have an arbitration clause or do I have a chance to do this in an open jury? What are my legal rights? Have I passed the statute of limitations? So it's crucial. The National Women's Law Center will take a lot of those calls gratis and not charge you to, to do that. You can also go to betterbrave.org and they will help align you with a lawyer. I also help align tons of people <laughs> on a daily basis with lawyers that I know all across the country. So that's the first thing. The second thing is document, document, document. Even though we've gotten better in believing women, you know, there's that thing he said, she said, and you gotta have evidence. You know, in some cases I've heard that people have tape recorded and you know, write a journal. And then I would just add that the third most important thing is to tell somebody else. You need to have witnesses. As we've seen, as a lot of these other cases have come forward, women can go back and say, I told this friend, and the friend says, yeah, she told me. And they'll give on different interviews, they'll give the same details, right? It's really important to have at least one other person who can back up your story. But you should basically just go to my book, rip out those two pages, put them in your back pocket, and that should be your plan. And here's why. Women, as I said earlier, feel like we can just work harder, work harder, work harder, and change it, right? And so what happens to so many women 
is that one day they finally just explode. And they go and they complain to HR without a plan. And the problem is you can't put the genie back in the bottle. So now you have no plan. You have no evidence. HR is the totally wrong place to go to complain, even though that's what companies require you to do, because they actually work for the company, not you. So now you have triggered what happens typically to women who do this. You're going to be promptly blacklisted, demoted, and fired and retaliated against. So you need to have this plan. Now, I'm hopeful that we're changing that process from being the automatic, but it's unbelievable that people still think that they can get away with this. Thank you for sharing your story and your tips. I want to move into a more lighthearted way to end this episode with our famous lightning round. This is very difficult. We're going to ask you rapid fire questions. Oh, goody. You have to answer as quickly as possible. Are okay. First job. Answering the phone for my dad's car dealership. <laughs> Worst job. Oh, my gosh. Being a waitress. I was so bad. <laughs> I was going to say, this could be a hard one to do. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I don't know if you can actually like, yeah. legally say what your worst job is. Um, I was a horrible waitress as well. Yeah. Can you skim your nighttime routine? Well, the one that I really hope to have is that I have a glass of wine and that I uh, spend time watching television shows that are just mind-numbing for me and don't make me have to focus on the bigger problems of the day that I'm battling. Um, so I'll, I love some reality TV shows, maybe Housewives or something like that. I stay up to date on New York and on Orange County. That's a good one. Yeah, and on Beverly Hills. Yes, excellent yeah. choices. Good yes. I caught up with Jersey. But I also have to say Fleabag. Fleabag is so good. <laughs> like, I wish there was more than two seasons. I know, I know. When I found out there was only two seasons, I was like, what? Um, and I also love Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I mean, there's a lot of other shows that I just love to relax with. When is the last time you negotiated for yourself? Oh, gosh, probably this morning. Definitely on a call before I got here. Listen, women need to stand up for themselves. And, and I think one of the most important things I've learned through this process is that one woman can make a difference, but together we rock the world and we have power in numbers. We got to speak up and women only ask for a raise when they're 90% sure that they might get it or a promotion. Men ask for it when they're 10% sure. We have to change that. The more women decide to speak up, the more that we create change for us. A lot of famous women have played you recently in movies. Mm. What is the very first thing that comes into your head when you see somebody playing you on screen? Wig. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a great place to end. Gretchen, thank you for sharing your experiences and stories. We really sure. appreciate it. Thanks for it. having me. Now can I have some of that wine over yes. there? Yes. Okay, good. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 